Good morning. Good. Oh, you're so sweet. Let's see if you do that at the end. Ha! That's a challenge. Um, I wonder if I can set this somewhere. I'm going to do it right here. So I am very excited to be here with you. And if I'm gut level honest, I'm also extremely anxious because after 25 years, I still get very anxious about opening God's word. Um, because you are his precious souls, and this is his holy word. So will you put those two together? There's reason to be a little anxious, isn't there? So let's pray. Again, Lord Jesus, will you um, get us all into a place from whatever we're coming from where we can really truly hear you and see you? I pray that you would hide me in the cleft of the rock that is you, that you and you alone would show um, you would show your glory, which is your goodness, to us, and that you would woo us through that, and we would leave here worshiping you. That is our ultimate desire, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So again, excited, joyful that I get to be here, but anxious, and part of it is because um, for those who know my story, I am the least likely ever to have been teaching for 25 years God's Word. Um, I'm the least likely... Um, I was never called into any kind of speaking ministry. I didn't hear a word from the Lord. I was actually commanded to start opening God's word by the gal who led me to Christ. Um, she just, we were both 16 years old at the time. I had been a Christian for about two weeks. And she said, Patty, it's time to start discipling. And I said, what, what, I didn't even, had never even heard that word. And she said, I want you to grab a group of friends and gather them and open God's word and talk to them about Jesus. I said, okay, I guess I can do that. So I went home and I, and I you know, before the words go big or go home, I did both. I invited the entire cheer squad of my high school over to my parents' living room floor. And before they came over, I decided I would do some study. So I flipped open the Bible, found something, and prepped it, 15 minutes. And as I was done and putting away my notes, the doorbell rings, and it's a Jehovah Witness, which was super cool. <laughs> Great. I get to practice discipling. And so I practiced on the Jehovah Witness, and she was speechless, so I figured I was doing pretty good. Um, she left, and she never did return. Fast forward a couple days, my notes are tucked away, I'm praying, all seven girls show up, they're on my parents' living room floor, I go to open my Bible, and my notes are gone. I honestly think the Jehovah Witness stole my notes, <laughs> because they were so good, right? So what do I do? I flip open the Bible again, and I pray. And I flipped open to Philippians. And I didn't let the girls know that my notes were gone. I just pretended I knew what I was doing. And so I opened up to Philippians, and I read a passage, and I expounded it um, right there and there. And Laura wept in repentance and turned to Jesus in faith. I have never been the same since then. <laughs> because there was nothing to explain what happened to Laura that day than that the king of the universe was rescuing her from the kingdom of darkness and transferring her into the kingdom of light, and I just got to go along for the ride. Amen? Amen. At that moment, Laura was the first of what would be 100 classmates who would come to Christ through a group of just ragamuffin teens 
delivered again from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And what I've discovered as I do study now, I promise I spent more than 15 minutes on today's message. Um, what I've discovered as I've studied God's word is that in God's kingdom, it is actually the most unlikely heroes who have the most likely heroism. It's the most unlikely influencers who have the most influence. It's the most unlikely leaders who have the most likely leadership. Because as God's people, we are part of something far greater than ourselves. So I wanna spend the next few moments looking at one of the most unlikely influencers in all of scripture, Queen Esther. In the story, in the story of God and his people, this is set 500 years before Christ Esther is the story of a Jewish orphan girl who becomes queen of Persia and is used by God to rescue her entire people from extermination. And I want to give a little bit of her backstory as you flip to Esther 4. And you, you can use your, your con table of contents if you want. No one will judge you if you don't know where it is. But it's right towards the middle, right before Job. So again, Esther, about 150 years before Esther, so Esther's 500 years before Christ, 150 years before Esther, God's people were taken into exile by a Babylonian king. Because history is God's story, God allowed Israel to be taken captive because they were bent on their own destruction. Their disobedience was leading to terrible destruction. So to preserve and to protect his people, he, he had them taken into captivity. Mercifully, this was his mercy again to purify them. God promised through the prophets, though, that in 70 years he would restore his people and bless them so that they might become a nation through whom the world would be blessed. And it's during the days of Esther that God miraculously moves through a pagan king's heart, King Cyrus, to allow the Jews to go back to their home. But many people are pretty settled after 70 years, right? So many of the Jews did not go back to Jerusalem. And there were many in the city of Susa. So here is where we open Esther, is in Susa. It is one of the four capitals of the Persian Empire at that time. It would be modern-day Iran. And so we open in the book of Esther in the court of this new Persian king who's ruling over the, the then-known world, Ahasuerus. You can say that four times fast. Ahasuerus. I've been practicing just for you. So chapters 1 and 2, are this, the stage is set with this lavish Persian palace. 180 days, the king is displaying his wealth. The scriptures say his magnificent splendor of his greatness. And at the end of these 180 days, he's having a seven-day feast of massive excess, like the wine and everything is to flow and flow and flow and flow. And so understandably, the scriptures say now when he's feeling good with wine, meaning this king now has a buzz, he calls for his beautiful bride, his wife, Queen Vashti. This megalomaniac king sends her so that people can ogle over her and think that he's pretty amazing. Now, I know this seems really out of reach that rich men would display their wealth for political gain and then tra traipse out their trophy wives so that other men will ogle over them and so they can feel good about themselves. But it actually did really happen in the Persian world. Vashti wouldn't have it. She said no. She defies her husband, the king, and she loses her crown. Well, after a couple days, he's starting to miss Vashti, and all of, his, all of his advisors are a little worried because if she's reinstated, then all the wives will pop off to their, to their husbands. So they decide, hey, king, let's do this. Let's round up all the virgins in your entire province. Let's bring them in. Let's create a harem for you. 
That sounds pretty good. So The Bachelor is really absolutely nothing new. <laughs> In Esther 2, we are introduced to the beautiful orphaned Jewish queen, uh, Jewish girl Esther, and her cousin and guardian, Mordecai. Esther is taken into the king's palace where she finds favor with her captors, and she's advanced to the best part of the harem. And after a year of beauty treatment, how awesome would that be? She didn't have to stand in line in the dining room to get 30 minutes of a massage. She had a year of beauty treatments. Esther is finally, it was actually her turn to go into the king. And she gets way more than a rose. In 2.17, Esther 2.17, it says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So chapter 3, though, the plot winds up. Mordecai, who sits at the city gate, refuses to bow down and pay homage to Haman, who is the king's right arm. Consumed with hatred, Haman decides he's going to bribe the king into a plan to exterminate all the Jews because he so, has so much hatred for Mordecai. So an edict goes out. Bad news travels fast. An edict goes out, and the entire Jews are going to be exterminated. And that's when we turn to Esther 4. So you want to follow along with me? And we're going to read this because it's way too captivating not to. Um, you want to hear God's word over mine, I promise. All right, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He, wept, he went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decrees reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's, young women, um, when, when Esther's young women and eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, and that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the gold, king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. As for me, I have not been called to come to the king for 30 days. So they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think, you yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. 
but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days and nights. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thank you, God, for your word, right? So again, whatever our backstory, we are part of God's people through Jesus Christ. And we not only share Esther's history. I was just telling somebody earlier, I just found out I'm one-eighth Jewish. Isn't that cool? Um, Whatever our backstory, um, we share Esther's. And we also share her destiny. In Esther's story, we get to find our own story. How unlikely it is that God would use any of us for the deliverance of his people but also how in God's kingdom, it is actually the most unlikely who have the most likely influence. So from Esther 4, we're going to consider two things. How unlikely Esther was, first, and second, how she became the most likely. And here we're going to find our stories, yes, for you and me. So again, number one, uh, most likely, the most unlikely. Esther is the most unlikely. Why? Because she's removed from the destruction. She doesn't even know what's happening. She's been having beauty treatments, remember? Esther is isolated. No one knows she's a Jew. She's isolated from the sorrow and the grief of her people. Every Jew in the known world is devastated, wrecked, and Esther doesn't even know it. Esther has concealed her identity so well she doesn't even know about the edict. And only after Mordecai refuses to change his clothes for her does she find out the truth. Does Esther then seek to understand why Mordecai is grieving, why he has a loud and bitter cry, and why he's wearing the clothes of deep mourning? And my sisters, like ancient Susa, our cities are broken with sin and suffering, and we didn't even need a pandemic to show us how much so, did we? Behind the Hamans of this world is God's enemy, Satan, and he's seeking to use suffering and sin to destroy God's people. And here's a question I have, and I'd love for you to shout out your thoughts. With these enemies within and enemies without, in our local cities, and our churches, what are the sins and sufferings that are threatening to, to destroy God's people? Abortion. What? Identity. Drugs. Affairs. Pardon me? Pornography. Pride, jealousy, yeah, let's keep going down. Uh, Worldliness, busyness, social media, division, yeah. Evolution. It's endless, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how many ways, how many entrances, both through sin and through suffering, many of the things you guys shared was, was in the category of sin, but also in suffering, And finding out that my daughter was going to be severely disabled in some spiritual abuse I experienced as a young teen and then later in life, God was also trying to destroy me by using sorrow. Even our sorrow, the enemy will try to use. Yes, we live, we work, we play with those facing diagnoses, disabilities, depression, 
all kinds of devastations. Do you know that a third of our brothers and sisters are addicted to something? It may be pornography, it may be alcohol, it may be prescription drugs. A third of our brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, have been sexually abused or impacted by domestic violence. We have eating disorders, anxiety, suicidal loneliness, gender confusion, same-sex attraction. We need each other. We need each other in this moment because we have enemies outside that want to destroy us and we have enemies within us that want to destroy us. To introduce me to Jesus Christ, Tony Lee had to push back, look past my rolling eyes, my cynicism, my hurt. As a result of the many things that happened in my childhood, I was on a pursuit to try to get somebody to love me. And that pursuit began with perfectionism, and that didn't actually work. Anybody else find that out, that you can't be perfect? So I decided, forget it. I won't try to be perfect. I'll go for whatever I can get, and I'll just use people instead of trying to get people to love me. When Tony Lee came near me, I wasn't even likable. Seeing the brokenness, she entered in. She told me the bad news I already knew. And she gave me the good news I was desperate to hear. And in the words of John Miller, you are worse than you ever thought. You are a worse sinner than you ever imagined. And you are loved more than you ever dare to hope at the, at the same time in Christ Jesus. Amen? Cheer up, sisters. We are worse sinners than we ever imagined. And we're more loved than we ever dare to hope. And still, after what she did for me, I am tempted to remain distant from strugglers. If I'm honest, I want to remain removed from brokenness and the suffering of others. Why are we tempted? Why are we tempted to be removed from it? What makes us pull back? Thoughts. Pardon me? Hurt. hurt our own hurt. Excellent. Fear. Say, what's that? Yes, you're concerned you're going to get dragged back in. You could get pulled down. Uncertainty. Judgment. Their judgment or our judgment. Yeah, there's all kinds of judgment going around. Laziness. Oh, thanks. <laughs> get me where it hurts. What else? Anything else? Lack of courage. Pain. What was that one? Louder. Pain, yeah, our own pain. Time, lack of faith, absolutely. Lack of obedience, okay. We should be in the other seminar, huh? Yeah. So why do I remain distant? Why do I remove myself? For me, sisters, my coast is towards individualism. Personal identity, developing my own identity and forgetting that I'm made in the image of God and when I come to Christ, I'm being recreated into that image. Talk about identity. But I want to pursue, pursue my personal identity. The pursuit of beauty, either of my body or my spaces in which I live. I am removed just enough not to know what my brothers and sisters are facing. And when I hear about it, I just reason that it can't be that bad. And I binge on Netflix. Anybody with me? Like Esther, I am removed and I am reluctant to do anything. But Esther's not allowed to remain in the comfort of not knowing. 
Mordecai sends a copy of the edict saying, go, go, sister, go, Esther, go, queen, go to the king on behalf of your people. And Esther doesn't say whether she's going to go or not go. She just says, if I go, I die. Because it's a capital offense to approach the king uninvited unless he holds out that scepter. And think about this. She's been married to a sensual king for five years and has not, seen, has not been called in to see him in 30 days. Pretty good indication she's lost favor with him. Persian edicts cannot be undone. The king's BFF hates Jews and has promised a treasury of money to have them destroyed. And so no wonder Esther says, reconsider, Mordecai. Reconsider. You're asking for my death. And again, if I'm honest, I am Esther. As hard as it is to be a struggler and to live among strugglers, it's harder even still to ask people to come near me and to move near others. I am reluctant to do anything. How about you? Reluctance is common to us all. What is your reason? What is the reason that you are reluctant? Fear you what? I won't be good enough. I'm not the right person. Yes. Oh, yes. Don't know what to say. Judgment. Watch God. Judgment. That you'll be judged or they'll be judged or. Pardon? Pardon me. I'll be judged. Yep. Involvement. What, what about involvement? Yes. Yes. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to perish at some level if I move close, right? What else? Say that louder. I have my own struggle. I don't know if I have capacity or energy to really do this well. Absolutely. For me, I like the comfort of ignorance. Anyone? I don't outright refuse to do something, but when I hear about I need, I pray somebody else will take care of it. <laughs> and I pray until somebody else takes care of it. I don't seek the wisdom of God and others. I decide on my own that the cost for me and mine is just too high. Besides, what good will it do? Their struggle might be unending. It might be out of my lane. I'll end up sacrificing my time and energy for nothing, and my health. Reconsider, Mordecai. But when my second baby, Aubrey, was born and diagnosed with a severe brain malformation, I was completely destroyed. Death became my escape. I prayed that either I would die or she would die. Lord, do not ask me to do this for the rest of my life. But it was sisters who paid a really high price to move towards me. They moved out of their lane, out and into something they didn't understand, and they just moved in close. They went to the king of kings on my behalf, and they held my hand, then through another unexpected pregnancy, which could have resulted in another daughter with severe disabilities. Again, they just kept going to that king of kings, and it was a significant moment in which they trusted me to the Lord their counsel always pointed me to Jesus. And honestly, some of the best were the ones that just sat and cried and refused to leave me. God used the sacrifices of those sisters to miraculously change my heart. And a baby girl who was once rejected became adored, completely changing the trajectory of my life and ministry. Still, 
I wrongly believe that sacrificing my time and my energy is going to account for nothing. I'm Esther, and I want to say reconsider when God tugs my heart towards someone who's suffering. But Mordecai won't reconsider, will he? In this moment, God has placed the most unlikely influencer for the most powerful influence. Again, in 4.13 to 14, do not think, Mordecai to Esther, to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here is where the most unlikely influencer becomes the most likely. Esther is reminded of the larger story into which her story fits. She's reminded of the deliverance of her God. Mordecai reminds Esther, this is the story into which your story finds its meaning. This is the identity into which you will find your identity. Identify with your people. The unfolding story of God's promise to bless the world through Israel. Mordecai is saying to Esther, you, um, you may lose your moment, but we will not lose ours. God will deliver us. But I believe you, orphaned Jewish girl, are queen for such a time as this. And Esther is left to decide if she will risk physical death, entering the king's presence unannounced, or she will die a spiritual death of another kind. Look at her identity crisis. Will she let the world, the beauty treatments, the crown be her identification? Or will she let her people remind her of who she truly is. If Esther refuses to go to the king, she will die the slow death of her identity. She will, slide the sl- she will die the slow death of being separated from her people, from any true meaning in her life. And isn't it easier to be reluctant, to be doubtful, to remain distracted? Because to care is to lose control of how and when God will use us. If we take seize our moment we will be asked to do things we don't want to do god will ask us to use our time and our energy and our gifts in ways that we had never anticipated he will actually ask you to do something outside your lane because he wants to show you his power is perfected in your weakness We will learn things about ourselves and we will learn things about others we wish we didn't know, but we need to know and will never be the same. Because it's in this place of death to our personal identity that we find the source of life. We find our true identity and we move into it. Because deliverance is happening all around us, my sisters. And when we enter in, God is at work in ways we can never imagine. And whether or not we see our brothers and sisters change, God is doing something and we change. The moment is never lost when we choose God's people, when we choose to press into our identity as his over the slow death of self. When we do choose this, we get to come alive to the transforming work of God in in our lives and others' lives. And this is Esther's moment. Face your identity crisis is what Mordecai is saying to Esther. And I loved how many of us stood up with identity value last night. Isn't this a huge question? 
Will you be about your people or yourself, Mordecai is saying. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to come alive to who you are? Identify with your people. But you have to wonder what Esther's thinking at this time. How could God use me now? Who I am. I'm a Jew. After what I've done, I've been in a harem for five years. All the things I've failed to do, the ways I told Mordecai no, the way I was removed and reluctant. And so don't miss how this unlikely influencer becomes the most likely. She lets her heart be devastated. She lets her heart be distraught. She lets her heart be wrecked. Her soul is distressed. Her soul is dressed in sackcloth and ashes like Mordecai's body at the gate. And she calls for a fast. Esther admits she's been reluctant. Esther's movement towards influence begins with repentance. She is joining the fast because she recognizes she's part of something much greater And she's fasting as an act of repentance. So she remembers the deliverance, and now she repents before the deliverer. She reaches out to her community. She's looking to God's promise through the prophet Joe that if we return to God and we render our heart, he will give us a new heart. Joel 2, 12 to 15, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Can you hear the echoes of what Esther's doing? With fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Doesn't that sound like Esther? And biblical commentators believe she's drawing on the prophet Joel's words. More than tearing her clothes like Mordecai at the gate, she tears at her heart once removed from her people, reluctant to see herself as part of her people and her community, and she's trusting God to do a work, to continue to abound in steadfast love because she's going to risk physical death to identify with her people. By fasting three days, Esther refuses to look her best and to go before a sensual king. Pretty cool. She's trusting God's grace in her. Esther will rely on being part of God's people, blessing the world through Israel rather than her physical appearance. And she says, if I perish, I perish. The actual Hebrew means I will die, but I would rather die being who I truly am than living this shadow mission I've been living Esther had to plead and and risk it quickly for all her people. Esther was laying down her entire life to to identify with them. As G.K. Chesterton writes, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live by taking the form of a readiness to die. And this is Esther, isn't it? And the great reversal of Esther's heart becomes the great reversal for God's people. The rest of the book of Esther is amazing. I would encourage you during your free time to take a look. The king holds out the scepter to Esther. Her life is spared. And the rest of the book is poetic, twists and turns, where Haman is actually executed by his own devices. It's kind of cool, although I don't know if we should really shout out about that. God delivered Esther and her people from Haman's edict to wait for the one through whom he would deliver the world, 
to wait for the one through whom the world would be blessed. Because the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world through Israel had not happened yet. And this is why he delivers them. The Jews remain under the worst of edicts. The sin-sick soul that is not saved will die and experience eternal torment. The Jews knew that they remained under this edict, the eternal destruction every one of our sin-sick souls deserve. And so God preserved the Jews to bring through them the promised one, his own son. Jesus left glory to identify with us, to live the perfect life we can't. And I love what Tim Keller, how he connects Jesus to Esther. He says, Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. See, the cross is our great reversal, isn't it? The deliverance from death to life that each of us have experienced, who've given our life to Christ. What happened to Laura in my living room all those years ago? Jesus is the king. Jesus now is at the king's right hand on our behalf. He's extending the scepter to you and me when we move towards another in courage. The risen Jesus lives to empower us, yes, you and me, to remember the story into which all of our stories find their meaning. So whatever our personal backstory, as part of God's people, we not only share Esther's history, but we share her destiny. And on this side of Jesus and the cross, we actually have more confidence than Esther, that God is with us, that God will will deliver others, and he is delivering them. The question is, are we drawing near and becoming a part of it? Because we can miss our moment to join God in the deliverance of people that is happening right as, we, right as I stand here speaking, but the moment will never be missed. So ask the Lord, what is an implication or application for you right now? Who might he be asking you to draw near or let drawn near to you. Years ago, I joined a pastor's study tour of Israel that was actually sponsored by him. And I, my husband and I got to go with a bunch of young youth guys, and actually it's where I met Megan for the first time. She was on that with her husband. And we got to be on this trip, and almost everyone, again, was in youth ministry except for Kurt. Kurt was an older man on the trip who was there to kind of mentor to all the young guys, and I was there to be trained to actually lead a trip to Israel the next year. And um, we found out on our last day of this time in Israel, this 10-day trip in Israel, that Kurt and I had something in common. We had Sunny Hills High School in common. I found out where he lived. We started talking about it, he, and I told him about the student-led revival all these years ago and how I had come to Christ and he just was stunned because 10 years before I came to Christ, he was on, he had canvassed that school with a team praying to God for revival for Sunny Hills High School. He didn't know for 30 years the revival that happened. And I didn't know for 30 years that I was part of something much greater than I could have imagined that God was in the work of delivering all these teens years before I ever stepped foot on that campus. Kurt and I were awed by the story into which our story finds its meaning. 
And it reminded me of that living room in my parents' house and all of the years in between. And it fast-forwarded me to a living room in Central Asia. For the last 10 years, I've had the privilege of working with women leaders and, women and men leaders in the underground church. And I was in a quiet living room, um, hidden. I was in a region where they asked me to shred all my carefully um, studied notes and I'm here with persecuted brothers and sisters there to try to encourage and equip them. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what I could offer them with notes. And now you're asking me to shred my notes. And for eight hours, we sat on the floor and we opened the scriptures with no notes. I don't even want to know what I said. But at the end, all, with, uh, sitting with all these Muslim background believers, there was one woman there who actually wasn't a believer and shouldn't have been there. And she came up to me. Sayora. She said, today, I'm choosing Jesus. And she gave me this ring. She wanted to thank me. She had been praying about the Quran versus the Bible and praying for the truth. Now, I know if I hadn't been in that secret spot, she would have still come. To Jesus because that's how powerful he is. I could have missed the moment because I was so scared about teaching without my notes and I didn't want to do it and I kind of kicked and screamed all the way. God wanted me to see you couldn't miss this moment. This was her moment to come to me, but you got to be part of it. So we can miss the moment, but the moment is never lost when we choose to identify with God's people. I doubted God's ability to use me to encourage these women, and yet, well, look what God did. I can miss the moment, but the moment is never lost. God is delivering men and women, children, right now. Thousands are probably coming from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light this very moment while we're in this room. The question is, are we going to be part of it? Do we want to be part of it? We may ask me, an influencer for this moment, who I am, all that I've done. Yes, this is our moment, sisters, to have our hearts torn over the suffering of others, to be given hearts willing to go to our king on their behalf, to experience the deliverance Jesus gives that is a taste of what is to come because he's coming back. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 4. Can I hear an amen? amen? Knowing all that Jesus has done to make that moment possible, the moment possible of his return, the moment possible when we will live without any pain, let's not miss a moment till we get there. We have entered the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord Jesus, will you tear, render our hearts, give us the grace, and trust you that as we are aware of the suffering and struggles of others, as we let people come near us, that you're doing the work. That to simply be present, offer those fish and loaves, who knows what you'll do. And even if we don't get to see what you do, in the moment, we know you are always doing something. And that is what we will see for all eternity. Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for leaving everything for us. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen. I was hoping to have time for questions, but we, because the main session's in here, we got to be done. But I will be around if anybody wants to, to connect. And I would really encourage you that if you came with sisters, um, that you spend some time praying for each other. Uh, if you have some confession like Esther, do that. That's how we're healed. And ask for each other's help and encouragement. Um, promise me you'll do that because we ran out of time to do that. I was going to have you do it in here. So for the shy ones, you're really happy about that. <laughs> and for the bold ones, go find the shy one and, and pray with her around the lake. Okay? Promise? Okay. And I am here alone, so if anyone wants to be my friend.